The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Good evening. Hello, hello, hello. Missed you. Glad to see you again. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Every time we get together and before we offer the teaching and in every ceremony held in Zen monasteries, particularly at Pine Wind, I often begin with, or the teacher at hand often begins with what we call a opening ceremony or opening dharani. And even though it is delivered in English, its meaning still escapes so many people. So I thought this evening I would open with that dharani, but in a kind of translation form. That which is real, often referred to by others as truth, God, universe, Buddha nature, cannot be seen with the eyes, cannot be heard with one's ears, is both subtle and profound, pervading the entire universe, here, right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands of years, May we completely understand, may we completely actualize the true meaning of these teachings. I'll come back to that later. Barrier number one. The mind, composed of ignorance or wrong points of view, suffers from a spiritual disease. It sees falsely. Seeing falsely causes it to think falsely, speak falsely, and act falsely. You will see immediately that everyone, without exception, has this spiritual disease. In Pali, the ancient source language of Buddhism and Hinduism, the word for mental illness means wrong view. We must be careful not to interpret this righteously, as in if you see things differently than I, you are wrong. The wisdom here lies in the revelation that our wellness of mind hinges on how clear and true we remain to the pulse of life itself. At heart, (coughs) our mental health comes out of the sacred relationship between our deepest and truest self and the very source of all life. The moment we distort, the moment we limit, the moment we discriminate or rationalize things away 
from what they truly are, we start to experience the spiritual disease that Ajahn speaks of. The Buddhist teacher from Thailand reminds us that these passages of imbalance and blurry thinking are unavoidable. They cannot be circumvented the way you might drive around a pothole. No, these distortions can only be minimized and repaired. So we must accept that by being human, we will distort all of life, and thus we must commit to learning how to refresh our relationship with what is sacred. Quite often, to uphold a wrong view, we build and maintain a wrong way of living. For example, when younger and sorely in need of approval and love, I hurt so much inside that I assumed that life was somewhere over there, not where I was. Once believing this, I put all my energy into getting over there. But after a hard journey, I was blocked. The people over there wouldn't let me in. Now I had to figure out who was the gatekeeper and what were his rules. And now there was the doing of all these tasks to satisfy the gatekeeper so I might be let in. It took me years to realize that no matter the pain, life is always exactly right where we are. Nothing is being withheld in this space, this presence, this now. All that misguided effort was built <coughs> on a wrong view. As Buddha Dasa says, everyone without exception has the spiritual disease. While underneath, the undistorted life is softly waiting. Given this, we must take, we must make a ritual not of seeing rightly, but seeing, living completely. If the mind is never clearly understood, that is to say, if the mechanics and workings of the mind is never clearly understood, suffering compounds. And we are never truly known by anybody as who we truly are, the me, the I, I present to you, and we never really come to know anyone else. We call this shutting life out. And tonight is about letting life in, or at least the means by which we can begin to live fully. Now this living fully or living more fully, as most people talk about it, has different meanings for different people. But tonight I want you to understand that the meaning that we're going to talk about, the ground that we're going to operate from, applies with the words I just read to you. A full life is one that lives in harmony with one's true self and with the source of life, whatever you call it, God, Buddha, nature, universe, the truth. And the problem with saying that has to do with semantics. And the problem with semantics has to do with the opening Dharani that says to us, even if we write about this, 
even if we talk about this, or as the Korean Zen master often told his students, the moment you open your mouth, the moment you think about it, you are wrong. And so words, at least from the Zen perspective, is what you may have often heard or read called the finger pointing at the moon. Because that which is true, that source of life, cannot be defined in human terms, cannot be intellectualized, cannot be conceptualized, and certainly cannot be given through the vehicles of the written or spoken word. It can only be known intimately and experientially. And so to live a fuller life is to have the experience of a full life. To live a fuller life is to have the experience of a full life. And that is, if you will, acquired, as in Ignatius once wrote, our hearts will remain restless until they rest in thee. That is to say, again, as Ajahn's words to us tonight speak, if we are going to live life and let life in, it is a function of living in harmony and regularly in communion with the source of life. And it doesn't matter what you call that, because whatever you call it, that's just the finger pointing at the moon. That's not it. And one of the problems for many people, especially spiritual people, is what is often referred to as the trappings in spirituality. Something the late Trungpa Rinpoche wrote about in his book called Spiritual Materialism. We get caught up in the forms, we get caught up in the concepts, we certainly get caught up in thinking. In getting caught up in thinking, it has been my experience over 37 years that when most people talk about their life, what they are talking about is that most people live life as a story, a story they have told themselves over and over again, and a story that they have told others about themselves over and over again. And if you've been listening so far, whatever the story may be, even Holy Script even texts written by profound spiritual leaders, whatever the story may be, that is not the whole story. And to live a full life, to let life in, to live a whole life, requires knowing the whole story. And the whole story requires the cultivation and the nurturing of a separate capacity we all inherently possess, sometimes referred to in Buddhism and other traditions as the cultivation of wisdom. Wisdom being the word often used to point to that which is sourced in divine. Now in Zen, again, if you've been listening to the opening Dharani, from the Buddhist perspective, that which is divine pervades every space of the universe. It is right here, right now. More accurately, <coughs> everything is it, manifesting itself in a myriad of forms. Therefore, we don't need to travel thousands of miles to some perceived location or holy space to come into communion with it. We can and need to regularly commune with ourselves 
and others in a more open and intimate space. And an unwillingness on our part to be open and to enter into intimacy with ourself and others is often the singular barrier that prevents us from letting life in, living life fuller, and often manifests itself with you coming to me and saying to me, my life feels incomplete. And I say to you, because it is. Because it is. Because most of us, again, without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating from moment to moment, you can't get this. And how the mind is operating from moment to moment, and it's doing it right now, you think you hear me. You think you see me. But in reality, whatever it is you are hearing, just like whatever it is I am hearing, whatever it is you are seeing, just as whatever it is I am seeing, the mind has filtered according to its discriminations. According to its discriminations. So what is different at Zen centers than anywhere else I have found <coughs> is that when you come to train with me, and you should come to train with me, whatever is different it has to do with the fact that you will hear me say to you, whatever you get out of this training is entirely up to you and entirely a function of what you bring to it or what you put into it. And that's a fact of life. Whether or not we are experiencing life fully from moment to moment is really a function of how well we have come to first understand how the mind is operating, and second, learned how to, what I call, recondition its conditioning. Learn how to live life outside of the singular faculty we have been entrapped in as the only means of living life, and that is this egocentric self that thinks about life and lives life thinking about it, that feels this way and acts this way according to certain stimuli that affects it and so forth. Authentic spiritual practice, genuine spiritual practice, the stuff of Moses and Jesus and the Buddha and all the rest, has to do with learning how to step outside the bureaucracy of ego and see directly, and live directly, and love unconditionally, first oneself and others. Again, when most of us talk about loving ourself and others unconditionally, we talk about it with an agenda. And usually when we look at that agenda, it's discriminating by nature, because we're going to learn how to love ourselves unconditionally because of all the SOBs that haven't loved us unconditionally. You see? And already we have separated ourselves from that potential. We have separated ourselves from any possibility of that. Because the great way, as the ancient Chinese Zen masters used to talk and write about it, the great way, which is what they called referring to living life, Living life, they would say, the great way, is not difficult except for those who discriminate. 
except for those who discriminate. And what you need to know is that the spiritual disease that Ajahn refers to in this evening's reading is discrimination, is the discriminating mind. So the way we often do it or normally do it is to pursue that which brings us comfort and pleasure and, for, and sense of satisfaction, which is actually gratification and so forth, and to set our lives up or to contrive the way we live life from moment to moment, averting all of the other stuff. We try to bring in the good and push away the bad. And that is why our lives often feel so incomplete, because in order to know life fully, we've got to bring in the good and bring in the bad. We've got to let both in. Now, one of the reasons why we don't let both in has to do, again, with a culture that is, first of all, our culture. You and I go back into, when we leave here, and operate in on a daily basis. Some of you more than me, because I live in a monastery. But you and I go back into a culture that, A, is not conducive for your well-being. It is not conducive for your well-being. It is not designed to be conducive for your well-being. So any effort on my part to find fulfillment and satisfaction in that culture is the dog chasing its tail, you see, is futile. Because the culture you and I operate in, obviously, and most certainly, is always discriminating. It tells you what you need to be beautiful. It tells you what you need to be good. It tells you what you need to be right. And you spend all your money, time, and energy going after that. Because somewhere along the line, in that domain I call our culture, you and I were scared out of ourselves and from that moment on convinced that not only was life not good enough, just as life, but I'm not good enough, just as I am. And the problem is, is that most of us try to repair that or recondition our conditioning with the very stuff that got us there. And so genuine spirituality has to do with a formula that I've been reciting 30-some years of my life. The surest way to have your life go on the way it always has is to keep doing it the way you have always done it. Spirituality is about stepping out of the bureaucracy of ego and using a completely and different and skillful and well-honed and proven technique to do that. And then to continue to live your life accordingly. That is to say, once you have touched the fire you are smart enough to know not to touch it again, you're saying. Now, the paradox with what I just said, touching the fire and not touching again, is that much of spiritual work has to do with walking into the fire and getting burnt over and over and over again, getting consumed. I was reflecting about this, as I often have so many times in the past 37 years, that what we're talking about tonight, that whenever you and I, you come to the monastery or you come here to the yoga center, 
to meditate or do yoga, all of the spiritual work that we are involved in, this stuff was created by characters who left their comfort, pleasurable lifestyles and entered into unthinkable, at least for us, Western modern Americans, unthinkable conditions and reconstructed their lives so differently that when Moses came down off the mountain, they didn't know who he was. When Jesus was resurrected, the very people who lived with him for 30-some years, if you will, didn't know it was him. The transformation that they achieved was a function of the changes they made in their life, their lifestyle and the way that they are living. And most of us are unwilling to do that. Most of us practice by trying to fit the truth into our reality. And given our reality, the truth is never going to fit. So tonight is about a willingness on our part. And I say our because this is not something I have necessarily achieved and now I don't have to work on it. Now this is something I have to work on to achieve every day of my life, just like you. Because... You know, whenever that thing, whatever that is, people call enlightened happened for me, and then they tagged me with the title Roshi, which ruined the rest of my life, if you will. Whenever that happened for me, it's not like I was taken out of human skin and flesh and given some kind of angelic body. Trust me, it didn't happen like that, you see. <coughs> so it is something you realize, and then you spend the rest of your life actualizing with practice, practice, practice. Barrier number two. Just as the warmth of summer can make a cricket sing, the quality of being held enlivens the heart. We have been battered by modern times into obsessive problem solvers. But as life pairs us down into only what is essential, it becomes clear that the deepest suffering of heart and spirit can never be solved, only witnessed and held. I have struggled with this constantly. Just recently, after being away for two weeks, I returned to a tender partner who lovingly uttered, I really missed you. Instantly, I reacted by scanning for ways to solve the feeling, to limit my travel or call for more often. I instantly tried to change my patterns of being (coughs) away from the relationship rather than just feel the poignancy of being loved enough to be missed. Frequently, this reflex to solve life, rescue it, and fix it, removes us from the tenderness at hand. For often, intimacy arises not from any attempt to take the pain away, but from a living through together, not from a working out of things, but from a being with it. Trust and closeness deepen from holding and being held, both emotionally and physically. I'm learning pain by pain and tension by tension that after all my strategies fail, 
The strength of love waits in receiving and not negotiating, in accepting each other and not problem-solving each other, in listening and affirming each other, not trying to change or fix life or those we love. So, <coughs> uh, I often talk about uh, the fact that I make it a point to rarely go to uh, funerals. And one of the reasons why I do that is that my experience has been that whenever the Zen master enters the funeral, a lot of people come up looking for answers about death. And I'm not very good at that because often my answer is, this sucks. You know, batten down the hatches. It's going to hurt, you say. No matter how enlightened you are, no matter how spiritually advanced you are, when you lose someone you love, it hurts. And death, from the Buddhist perspective, is the great liberator. By that I mean not when we temporally die, but when we resolve death, it, sends to inf- it tends to inform our livingness. And one of the things that death says to us, whether we've realized it to date or not, is that life is not to be solved. I often tell a friend of mine, stop making your life a project. Most people interpret spirituality as making their life a project. I've got to work on my life, I've got to work on me, and I've got to work on the world. I've got to fix it. It's all messed up, and so forth. And that is important to some degree. But when you find yourself consumed Whereas I often ask people in relationship seminars to examine what they bring to the relationship. And most people who come to the seminars come to the seminars because they're having some kind of difficulty in their relationships. And what they discover, (coughs) not necessarily with great pleasure, but what they discover often in the exercises I give them is that what most of us bring to our relationships is what most of us bring to life complaining. Most of us, when we look at who we are in our relationships, who we are is a complaint of one kind or another. Again and again and again, we need to take a look at the words of Mark Nepo when he says, you know, life is not something to be solved. Life is not something to be figured out. Now, understanding it to some degree is important. As I said earlier, Understanding how the mind is operating from moment to moment is essential if you are ever going to achieve achieve cessation from suffering. But how do you uh, how do you achieve that understanding, and how do you apply it? So the first thing I often tell people is that the first thing that is necessary, as I mentioned a moment ago is a willingness on your part to do what is the single most difficult thing for human beings to do, change. We don't like it, we don't want to hear about it, and we often rarely want to talk about it. And certainly we don't want to do anything about it. But the fact remains that the universe is designed in in a way that the only thing that brings about change in my life is changing the way I live my life. 
from the Buddhist view, which we see as right view, life functions as cause and effect. Whatever results we are getting out of life is being caused by the way we are living life, and not necessarily the things we are doing, but again that mental attitude or point of view we are bringing to life. And one of the surest ways you can block life from coming in, and just think about this from your own experience, one of the surest ways to block you from being intimate with me is to keep telling you that you're a problem that I need to solve. Isn't it? Who wants to hear that? One of the surest ways to continue to block life from fully coming in is to keep approaching it as something to be feared, something to be corrected, and something to be solved. To keep approaching it as a problem. And I often tell people that when you take a look at problems in people's lives, problems for most people is problematic. <laughs> it's problematic not because problems are inherently problematic, but it's problematic because most people have a problem with problems. You see. Did you get that? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. All right. So it's how we are approaching every moment of life that literally determines not only what we will experience, but what we are also permitted to experience. When the mind views life as something separate and apart from the being, it views life as something to be conquered or achieved. And that point of view always leaves life at an extension. Life is always, for that point of view, out there to be lived by going there where it is. But as Mark Nepo said, life, <coughs> not only Mark Nepo, but every spiritual teacher has said the same thing. Life is not over there. You know, the grass looks always greener on the other side until you have to cut it and fertilize it and maintain it, you see. Life is always exactly where it is and where it always has been, right here, right now, you see. And the only reason why you may not see that or know that every moment of your life is because you may have a problem with what's right here, right now. And when you examine how the mind is operating from moment to moment, for example, one of the exercises I often give my students is, has to do with dealing with critical and judgmental thoughts about oneself, about the world, and others. And one of those exercises, and I'll be talking about another one later tonight, one of those exercises is that every time some critical or judgmental thought about yourself arises. Ask this question. How do I know this to be true? And when you need to know that when Zen masters <coughs> give you exercises like that, we already know the answer. We already know the outcome. And we wait for you to discover it and come running back to us and either say, go to hell or you're the greatest teacher that ever lived. One or the other. So there's no in between there. People either love us or hate us, if you will. 
And the answer to that question, if you have ever done the work, you know this, is that the only way I know that life is a problem, that life is something not available to me, that wholeness and fulfillment is something others have but not me, is because somebody told me that. It's because somebody told me that. And that is true about most of our criticisms and judgments of ourselves and others. The only way we know that to be true is that somebody told us that and we said, yeah, that's true. That's the only way we know that to be true. That if you search the entire universe at any part of that universe, you would not find it written in stone. And if you were to suddenly come face to face with God and ask God, you would hear him ask you the question. He asked the first man and woman in the garden, who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you you were wrong? So, if we are ever going to begin to fully live life and let all of it in, which is absolutely essential, if we are ever going to feel fulfilled, if we are ever going to know our true potential, our fullest potential, Einstein, if he was here, would say to you, you haven't even a clue of how great you really are, how powerful you really are, how capable you really are. And that would be true. And how do I know that to be true? I discovered that for myself. So, if we are ever going to know our fullest potential, which is our potential for all the joy and all the satisfaction as well as our potential to not only just get through the sadness and the disappointment, but to learn from that and be better because of that. If we are ever going to know that potential, we have to stop viewing life as a problem to be solved. Life is never what it's supposed to be. It is just what it is. Life is never what it's supposed to be. It is just what it is. And most of us never get to know what that is because we are operating from a very egocentric mechanism that we have unconsciously for our entire lifetime come to accept as the only source of truth or accuracy for us. And most people decide to enter into spiritual practices because somewhere in the course of their life they kind of like get a, started to get a sense, uh, I'm not too sure about that, I say, or something is amiss. And that's how it often works. As Ignatius said, our hearts will remain restless, and I will paraphrase it by saying, no matter how many prof profound experiences we have had, our hearts will remain restless until they rest in thee, until they rest in the source of life. Whatever you call that isn't it, so don't think you know what I'm talking about, because I don't even know what I'm talking about. Any questions?
just got to vote. <laughs> All right. So, step number one. We need to recondition our conditioning by changing our point of view. Now, how does one change their point of view? How does one ever change what they have come to believe and function from their entire life? How does one change their point of view? Anyone? By questioning it. That's a start. Hi. What's your name? Me? Yeah. Nancy. Hi, Nancy. I just decide. Exactly. I just declare, I'm going to start viewing life, living life from this ground. I have no evidence for this. I'm not even sure what the outcome will be. But one thing I do know, as you just said, I'm questioning it. There's something amiss here, and something has to be changed. So one changes one point of view by applying Nike Buddhism. Just do it. Just change it. Just decide one day that no matter how difficult life gets, I am going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. I'm going to do that not because I have any evidence that God even cares about me or even likes me, but because I choose to do that. Because I choose to do that. Now, for most people hearing that, that is a risk they are unwilling to take. Because, again, one of the problems about spirituality in the contemporary world is that you've been duped to believe there's answers. You see? There's answers. And you need to know that the universe has never functioned on answers. In the East, they say, Westerners are obsessed with having the right answer. What is more important is to have the right question. Is to have the right question. And the right question is never answerable because the right question will carry you through life with a point of view that you had as a child, that I had as a child, that made life seem so exciting and adventurous for a period of time until some smart, intelligent adult came along and told us to grow up. You see? And then it all went downhill from there. You see? And every single teacher throughout the centuries has said the same thing. If you want to know, you need to become like a child. You need to become like a child. In Zen, <coughs> one of the greatest Zen masters to ever live, Shunru Suzuki Roshi, said, the most difficult part of practice is not long hours of seated meditation in a particular posture, but maintaining what he called beginner's mind. And beginner's mind is an attitude. It's a point of view. It's one where I am more interested in experiencing all of life and experiencing it in a particular way than I am in having life solved for me. Than I am in having life solved for me. One example of 
the essentialness of what I'm talking about has to do with something at least I've learned in my lifetime. Anything that I have ever learned of any substance that has ever helped me with anything in life has been the stuff that taxed me, has been my mis- through my mistakes. I have never learned anything from doing it all right. So when we talk about the 12 keys to living life fuller <coughs> later on tonight, one of them has to do with giving up wanting to be right. There's no fun in being right. There's nothing to be gained in being right. You see? Everything one can learn must be learned by being taxed. Anything of any value is the stuff that taxes us. And the stuff that taxes us is the stuff we don't ever make time for. And it's what I call my term for this mystery. To live life as a mystery is to open the door of letting life come in. Because life is a mystery. And when we begin to embrace it as mystery, when we begin to embrace it from the point of view that life is meant to be lived, not solved, and that my life is already complete and (coughs) doesn't need to be made into a project to make it better, that everything I need was given to me at birth, I came with it, and it never leaves me And if I'm willing to take at least a moment a day to trust that, I will find that out for myself. And when I find that out for myself, everything changes. Everything changes. So I like Mark Nepo's uh, (coughs) words about it. This has become such an obsession with us that we are even unable to accept another person's expression of love. When he talks about coming home from his traveling and his wife comes up to him and says, you know, I really missed you. Instead of just enjoying that and, you know, embracing that and and being grateful for that, his mind, he says, goes into action to try to fix that for her. How many of us live our life as fixers? Fixers are, first of all, dangerous people. (laughs) Second of all, well-intentioned, well-intentioned, but dangerous to themselves and to others. You're saying? You need to know that in in being a single parent, (coughs) one of the techniques that I apply to parenting my three-year-old is I tell her once, if you do that, this is going to be the result. When she says to me, no, I say to her, okay, that's how you learn. And then I let her go off and hurt herself. I pick her up afterwards while she's crying, you know, because she's got to always know there's a place of refuge. But then I sit her down and I say to her, I tried to tell you, I've been around a little longer than you. I say, you've only been here three years. I say, maybe I have something to offer. But I never try to fix it for her. I never try to fix it for her. So if we are going to begin to open our hearts more and more to letting life in, we have to stop trying to fix it. 
we have to stop trying to fix it. It is better to know the question, why am I here? <coughs> and to know how to just sit with the question than it is to run off to some book, some teacher, some place to get an answer. All you get out of that is momentary gratification and never a real sense of who you truly are. You and I are a combination of mistakes and successes. And when we spend our life contriving it to avoid the mistake part of our life, we never fully appreciate the successes. And one of Mark Nepo's successes was being able to see and embrace a loving wife. And in that moment, <coughs> he was just shutting that down. He couldn't even enjoy what she really was. He couldn't even see what she was really saying. What she was really saying was not fix my life so that I miss you. What she was really saying is that, damn, I love you. And how many of us would love to hear that when we come home? You see? I know I would. You see? How many of us would love to know that there's someone in our life that really appreciates who we are? But how often do all of us have that somebody and never see it because our view of life is we've either got to fix ourselves or we've got to fix someone else or we've got to fix life. You see? Life is never what it's supposed to be. It is what it is. It is what it is. And the meaning of life <coughs> is to live it. That's the meaning of life. When people say, what is the meaning of life? The trees and the grasses and the birds all look at us humans and say, to live it, stupid. <laughs> and the purpose of your life is to live it exactly as you are, who you are, what you are, and to live it exactly as it is, and to be a benefit to it. And one of the biggest benefits we can bring to life is to stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to fix it. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, and I'm sure that a lot of those people are in this room tonight, they say to me, well, you know, we are here to learn something. But they never go to school. Their whole life is contrived to avoid the lesson. And I don't understand that. Because, yes, we are here to learn. We are here to learn who we truly are, who everyone else truly is, so that we can create the kingdom of heaven on earth. You see? And we're not going to do that until we learn who we truly are and who everyone else truly is. You see? So we, we speak a good talk, <coughs> you know, we, we have a good talk, but we don't have the walk. And the walk is learn from the mistakes, from the difficulties, from the disappointments, and <coughs> stop trying to avoid so many of them. Now, this does not mean you have to like it. In fact, you don't have to do anything but be honest one of the keys, again, that you will read in the paper that I'm going to give you to go home with and I'm going to talk about later has to do with stop lying to yourself. And one of the ways we try to lie, one of the ways we lie to ourselves is trying to 
paint life into something it isn't. Sometimes life really stinks. It's just nothing but stink. Nothing but that. And we have to stop saying, but the stink comes from God. Now, the stink comes from us, you see. We are usually stinking life up, you see, because of the way we handle it and so forth. So we need to call a spade a spade. We need to always tell the truth. When we tell the truth, we set ourselves up to be open to life as it is. And part of the truth is and can be, I don't like it. Right, I got it. You don't like it. And you've got to live it. You've got to go through it. You've got to know it. You've got to become intimate with it. One of the practices the Buddha applied to teaching his first monks was to instruct them to go into cemeteries and meditate near corpses. And in India, cemeteries are not like they are here. Cemeteries in India are shrouded bodies laying on a field waiting for somebody to come along to throw them into the fire. So he would say to them, don't turn your eyes from the dead. Don't try to cover the scent with your hand or some other form. I want you to know death intimately. I want you to know it so well that it informs your life and your living. And that was one of the practices. And that is a metaphor, at least for us in contemporary spiritual practices, for again how to live our life in a way that we allow life to come in no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. And that's what we're talking about. We are talking about life, letting life be the problem when it is and the wonderful time when it is and holding both circumstances in equanimity. By equanimity, I mean a willingness on our part to not all of a sudden sound the alarm and suggest to ourselves that there's something wrong with my life because this is going on, or there's something wrong with my relationship because we're disagreeing. One of the other keys in the 12 steps I give you for living life fully is, has to do with, um, I forgot. I wrote it myself and I forgot. Hold on. Oh, here it is. Stop measuring the quality of your life by the amount of pleasure in your life. Stop measuring the quality of your life by the amount of pleasure in your life. Most of us say, thank God it's Friday, and then Saturday we say, Friday was great because there was just all pleasure, you say, and my life is great. And then Monday comes around and they say, ugh, my life sucks. I've got to go back to work, you say. What do you expect? Stop measuring your life by the amount of pleasure in your life. Your life is always at a place it needs to be. In Zen, from the Buddhist perspective, our teacher at any moment is what's showing up in life. The lesson to learn in any moment is what's showing up in life. Therefore, we are exactly where we need to be and we need to attend to that accordingly. Again, for those of you who speak about life as a lesson to be learned, 
to act accordingly is to become intimate with that circumstance, with that experience, in order to get the lesson. Because if you've been listening about how the mind operates, the mind will hide the lesson from you. The mind may not permit you to see the lesson initially, and you need to do some work in order to get there. You need to chop through the, the hard uh, surface to get to the chocolate in the middle. Life is a Tootsie Roll bar, if you don't know it, or a Tootsie Pop, you know. And most of us don't know how to just enjoy the hard crush, you know, the hard piece. We bite right through it to get to the chocolate. And then it's all gone, you see. So we need to learn how to just savor the hard until we eventually get to the chocolate. But that's how we need to do it. Any questions? Hi. What's your name? My name is Anne-Marie. Hi, Anne-Marie. Do you look at the mind as a person or an entity? Uh, do I look at it as a person or entity? No. Because you say the mind keeps us from doing things. Again, semantics is always the problem. What I mean by that is how the mind is functioning from moment to moment. Its mechanics often prevent us from seeing what is so. And not only from seeing what is so, but what we are permitted to see. That's because the, one of the primary qualities or characteristics of egocentricity or ego mind is its discriminating nature. So <clears throat> when I say to you, for example, and everyone else in this room, you will get out of this exactly what you put into it, what I mean for you is that whatever your idea of a good spiritual lesson is, is how you would determine whether or not you had anything, got anything out of tonight. So I often tell people, the moment you met her, the relationship was over. Okay? Because what we bring to those initial meetings is our idea about what's to come. <laughs> Don't we? <laughs> and when it doesn't turn out that way, what do we do? Something's wrong here. You see? So what we bring most of the time to every moment of life is the conclusion without even going through it. And that's like watching a video that says, brought to you by, and then the next frame is the end. <laughs> okay? Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a question? Yeah. Beth, good to see you. A uh, question I've wondered about for a while is um, why, particularly in the West, is death perceived as such a terrible thing and such a fearful, frightening thing because it isn't always that way. Uh, but that is how, in general, it seems to me people are afraid yeah. of dying. I think it's a contemporary paradox it is more modern than it has been in the past in the West. Uh, <clears throat> when I was a little boy, I uh, would go to where my father grew up on vacations, and they would still have viewings in the house where the body sat in the living room for days, okay? And people obviously got intimate with that. 
And the, that generation's view of death and dying was very different than from most people. There wasn't a fear of it. There was certainly a sadness over the loss of the individual, but there wasn't a fear of it. Okay? And I think in the East, the reason why it is such a more acceptable experience is because uh, the conditions that most people in the East have to live, it's all around them all the time. You know? Or the culture, such as the Indian culture, as I mentioned a moment ago, when you die, they wrap you up in a shroud and put you out in the field until somebody comes along and picks you up and burns you, unless you have the money to do it sooner, and so forth. So <coughs> I think it's a more, first of all, there's two parts to the answer. It's a contemporary paradox. More people more recently have a problem with it than I think older generations have had in the history of this country. Why? I think because of the <coughs> intimacy. Today we have more ways to hide you from it, okay, or to hide it from you more accurately. Whereas, I mean, when you think of the Civil War, we tend to think of wars like they went D-Day happened in Normandy, France, and happened in Europe. The Civil War was happening in people's backyards so much that people used to take picnic chairs and go out and watch it. The big battles, people went out and had lunch while the battle was going on watching it, and so forth. So death was right in front of them. It was, it was an intimate reality for them, like that. Not to suggest that there was no level of fear, but I don't think there was that much. Again, <coughs> the grief was usually the loss of someone they loved. Okay. I, I cannot, another example of that, I remember an occasion when um, a, a woman in my father's town <coughs> lost three of her babies at one time. And again, how that was handled by the family and all, it was very different. Very different. Okay. Thank you. Hi. What's your name? Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Um, in relation to this, don't you think, or I'm wondering if, if it's because we're more egocentric, um, the I, the me, being so important to us and fearing that that won't exist? Absolutely. Absolutely. The individuality, particularly in this country, has certainly uh, reached the level of the pathological. So when, you know, and I think this, this began a great deal, you know, about four decades ago, where we shifted from living our life for the benefit of the country. You know, like when Jack Kennedy gave his inauguration, he inspired people to do Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And people went out and did things for their country and did things for their community. And, and families were families at that time. The more and more we became obsessed with individual achievement, individual wealth, and all of that, the ego became reinforced. And yes, wholeheartedly, Zen spiritual practice is exclusively about working with that fact that the cause of our suffering is our obsession or attachment to this egocentric image of ourself that we <coughs> definitely contrive our life around to maintain its sustainability. 
But the very thing that we are trying to sustain is the very thing that prevents us from living life fully. So again, in Zen practice, in Zen spirituality, <coughs> the objective is to come intimately involved with that egocentricity of ours in such a way that we step outside of its gra- gra- uh, grip on us and, and, and not be so attached to its survival in that way. So that's what we mean when we talk about awakening to your true self because most of us think this me, myself, and I is the egocentric part of consciousness. And that is the, what we call small self. And our true self is much larger than that. So yeah, exactly. That's why I say genuine spiritual practice (coughs) is about stepping outside the bureaucracy of that mechanism we call ego. (coughs) Thank you. Anyone else? I think my name's Peggy. Hi, Peggy. I think it's Sure. Um, <laughs> That's all right. I forget often too. <laughs> uh, I was. I just with, with Jeff. I, I, we have the hospice movement to thank for bringing us back to um, getting getting intimate, intimate with death again, and, and being the franchisees who are dying. Yeah. Hospice is probably one of the greatest spiritual venues you can get involved in. Because, <coughs> as you know, in hospice, the training is to learn how to just be mm-hmm. with death. Mm-hmm. Be with all of those emotions, all of those feelings about it. Whereas, again, most of us have our life organized to avoid them. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. I, I have found those who have been, and you need to know hospice in the Buddhist world, in America especially, is huge. Many, 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 many Zen centers, particularly Upaya out in New Mexico, which is a Zen center founded (coughs) and run by (coughs) Joan Halifax Roshi. Their whole emphasis is on hospice and understanding how the brain works through aging and senility and all of that. And (coughs) many of these centers up in New York likewise. So hospice, again, is very much like Zen training. In hospice, you are trained to be with the very thing we try to avoid our entire life. So I agree with you. Yeah. We, sh- we should be grateful yeah, for hospice. Yeah. Thank you, Peggy. Right, Peggy? <laughs> that's it. All right, it's 8 o'clock, so that's when we take a break. Uh, refresh yourself, and if somebody can do something with the heat, I'd be grateful. Okay? Like so many of us, uh, I've always enjoyed Rumi, and this is his writing he titled The Tavern. In the tavern are many wines, the wine of delight in color and form and taste, the wine of the intellect's agility, the fine port of stories, and the cabernet of soul singing. Being human means entering this place where entrances, varieties of desire are served. The grape skin of ego breaks and a pouring begins. 
Fermentation is one of the oldest symbols for human transformation. When grapes combine their juice and are closed up together for a time in a dark place, the results are spectacular. This is what lets two drunks meet so that they don't know who is who. (laughs) Pronouns no longer apply in the tavern's mud world of excited confusion and half-articulated wanting. But after some time in the tavern, a point comes, a memory of elsewhere, a longing for the source, and the drunks must set off from the tavern and begin the return. The Quran says <coughs> we are all returning. The tavern is a kind of glorious hell that human beings enjoy and suffer and then push off from in the search for the truth. The tavern is a, j- a dangerous region where sometimes disguises are necessary, but never hide your heart. Keep open there. A breaking apart, a crying out into the street, begins in the tavern and the human soul turns to find its way home. It is 4 a.m. Nasrutin leaves the tavern and walks the town aimlessly. A policeman stops him. Why are you out wandering the streets in the middle of the night? Sir, replies Nasrutin, if I knew the answer to that question, I would have been home hours ago. So there has never been, at least in my experience, a single spiritual leader or teacher who has not emphasized the fact that the human is divine and the divine is human. Everything is absolutely essential. Every moment and every second is essential and necessary in our lives. And so we need to learn how to love the one we're with and love the place we're at. We need to be there. The practice of mindfulness that has been coined in the West as something part of the meditation practice in Zen has to do with just that, learning how to maintain presence or attention to this place, this now, this here. And it is also a metaphor for what Rumi just wrote. Everything in life is necessary. The drunk is necessary. The policeman is necessary. The tavern is necessary. Nirvana is necessary. Everything in life plays a part in the great scheme, the great mystery of life. And (coughs) genuine spiritual practice is about relearning what we once knew, and that is how to live all of it, how to participate in it fully, how to not discriminate with our desiring and egocentric uh, sensitivities. And so often we need to do work or practices that is very difficult for us to do, very difficult not necessarily to do, but when the mind starts to think about doing it, can contrive all kinds of horrific ideas and notions. But most of life... Lessons are learned that way, in tragedy, in difficulty, in labor. One of the (coughs) uh, wonderful things about uh, Mother Teresa when she was alive, who I had the 
honor of meeting one day, if you read the rule that her religious order lives by, um, in the rule, <coughs> when they talk about what we call in Zen work practice, they don't use the word work. They use the word labor. The nuns are instructed to labor with the poor, to labor with the dying. And when you take a look at Webster Buddha's definition of the word labor, it has to do with digging in, becoming intimate with what you're doing. And one of the essential practices in Zen has to do with just that, becoming intimate. When you come to the monastery to train in meditation, you will hear me say to you, you have not come here to learn how to meditate. You have come here to master it. You have come here to master it. And you have come here to master living your life. But that takes a laborious mind or attitude, a willingness to dig in, to get underneath the surface and feel the dirt in your hands, between your fingers and in your nails and to become personally and intimately involved with your life. And so the next time <coughs> difficulty shows up, particularly in relationships, from the Buddhist view, relationships is the battleground for freedom. Relationships is the battleground for freedom. If you're <coughs> ever going to learn you know, the, the, the divine lessons that we are here to learn, you're going to learn them in relationship. Now, <clears throat> this does not only mean those intimate relationships between two people, but relationship with everything else. And most of us aren't in relationship with anything but ourselves. Most of us aren't in relationship. <clears throat> we may be in some kind of joining together or coming together, but to be in a relationship requires a real intimacy, a real laboring to come to know other than yourself. And so the next time you find difficulty in your relationship, one of the contexts for what we've been talking about tonight, letting life in, is a very liberating context. And it's one where you decide, you and your partner, you and your spouse, you and your friend, you and life, decide that whatever shows up from here on in the relationship isn't showing up as oppositional to the relationship. So you can take that context and, you know, reuse it in our uh, topic this evening. The context of one's life literally determines the content. So you need to take a look at the context of your life in order to understand the content of your life especially those reoccurring problems that keep coming up. If you want to understand why they keep showing up in your life, why they keep reoccurring, you need to take a look at the context. And that has to do with, again, how you view yourself in relationship to the rest of the world, how you view yourself in relationship to others. That literally, again, determines not only what will show up in your life, or what, but what is permitted to show up in your life. So one's context for living determines the content. And a particular context that allows for freedom and growth, which is essential. A lot of relationships feel the way they do because they've stopped growing. Either one or both parties in the relationship have stopped growing. And when you stop growing, you die. 
And when a relationship stops growing, it dies. And in order for any relationship to grow, whether it is your relationship with your spiritual practice or your relationship with another individual, growth is essential. And in order for anything to grow, you must be willing to allow whatever shows up in the relationship, whatever shows up to show up as not oppositional to the relationship. So instead of panicking and becoming fearful of uncertainty and difficulty, which is always going to show up in life, if you think not, I must ask, where have you been? You see? If you choose to stop seeing that as oppositional to your life, but as opportunity in your life, here is the lesson being presented to me. This is an opportunity for me to learn something new, and the more I learn, the more I grow, and the more I grow, my life becomes more fulfilling, and <coughs> that fulfillment becomes sustainable, becomes sustainable. That is why in a Zen monastery, <coughs> when lay people come together with monks to practice and train, what happens there is they learn a particular form or etiquette to practice with, and it's a strict etiquette in a strict form required in the walls or inside the monastery. So you act this way, you handle it this way, and you handle it that way. And all of the etiquette is designed to force you to become intimate with what you're doing, to become intimate with the experience. You need to look you need to taste, you need to smell, you need to hear, you need to feel what's going on. And then learn from that experience, which leads to growing. If you want to grow, you have to keep learning. If you stop learning, you don't grow. If you don't grow, you die. And that's a fact of life, whether you like it or not. That's how it works, that's how it operates. So the first thing you need to do... <coughs> Tonight, if you're really serious about taking this teaching tonight and using it, and I tell everyone over and over again the validity of what we do here tonight or what we did here tonight shows up after you leave. This is just talk. We're just having a conversation, you and I. That's all that's going on here. A conversation that will mean something only if you apply what you've learned in the conversation. And one of the lessons has to do with declaring from here on that whatever shows up in your life does not show up as an opposition, but as an opportunity. There is a valuable jewel, a valuable lesson in what's going on here. The question is, are you going to hang out long enough to see it and learn from it? And that is what really matters. Most people's spiritual practice never comes to its fulfillment because they quit. And usually they quit. I often tell people, everything you are looking for in your life is always right on the other side of the line you've chosen to retreat from. <laughs> Always, right on the other side of the line you've chosen to retreat from. And if you would only go through that door, it's there for you to 
eat and digest and love and experience. And spiritual practice is like that. It, in spirituality, and I've been, one of the things that I think I've been more than a teacher is been a myth buster. You heard of Ghostbusters? I'm a myth buster. And, and the myth that I've been busting for 37 years is the myth that spirituality is about pleasure. It's about achieving some kind of blissful state for a few moments where you're seeing colors and lights and all that and everything else. And that can happen, and certainly it has happened. But real spiritual practice has to do with, as we say, it's easy to be a holy person on a mountain. You see, the real validity of your holiness takes place when you get down into the city, when you get down into the streets, when you get down into life where it's really happening. Life isn't happening on the mountain. Life is happening where you don't want to go, you see. Uh, one of the... Uh, teachers of this in my own personal life has to do with what I learned a long time about going on vacation. <clears throat> First of all, I go on vacation often alone. I rarely go on vacation with anyone because usually whoever I go on vacation with doesn't go on vacation the way I go on vacation. <laughs> so I often go on vacation and wherever I go have gone in my lifetime, I've always gone where the tourists aren't. And that's a metaphor for spiritual practice, you see. I've always gone where the tourists don't go. I go to where the people are living in the city. I love Italy. I've been there hundreds of times, and, and my dream is to retire there one day and to retire next door to a big, fat, old Italian guy who makes wine in his basement and whose wife yells and screams at and but makes great pasta and so forth so life is in the tavern and the tavern is temporary and a gateway to home a gateway to nirvana so we need to go into the tavern and we need to experience the tavern until we feel that emptiness that Rumi is talking about and in order to experience the tavern of life, we again need to stop discriminating and create an attitude that is often considered to be the attitude of the fool. You know, fools go where angels wouldn't even consider going, if you will. So the attitude of the fool is that everything else that everybody else rejects, that's where I'm going, that's where I want to be, and so forth. And so anything that shows up in your life shows up as your teacher, as the lesson. When you, need to, when you ask the question, what's the lesson I'm supposed to learn? It's whatever's going on in your life at that moment. And you need to find out what the lesson is. Now, you need to know that Zen masters tell their students forms and rules of how to study with a, with a teacher. And the teacher says this, my job is to teach you. Your job is to learn the lesson. It is not my job to help you learn the lesson in a way that I'm learning it for you. you. Your job is to learn the lesson. And part of learning the lesson is about discovering what the lesson is, you see. And when we're constantly running away from the difficult and the uncomfortable, we never get a chance to see the lesson. And you know what's wonderful about the way it's all designed? You can't run away. 
You can't run away because whatever you choose not to experience today is going to show up again. And it's going to keep showing up. You know, I tell the story about in my earlier days, one of the first seminars I gave was a kind of seminar that ran late into the hours of night and so forth. And we were at the part of the seminar where I was talking about completing one's relationship with their parents, which is an essential part because our, parent, our relationship with our parents defines and informs our relationships throughout life. So when we complete our relationships with our parents, we're free of that conditioning that we, in, we very naturally inherit and so forth. So I'm going on in the, uh, it's about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, talking about completing the relationship with her parents, and suddenly this, this woman in the back jumps up and starts screaming. And she says, I left my house, my parents, 20 years ago to avoid my father, and there he is, you know, <laughs> pointing at me. And, and it's like that. Life is like that. If you think you can run and hide, you can't. You say you can run, but you can't hide. And so, get the lesson over. Learn it now. One of the koans or mantras of all Zen teachers is, "If not now, when?" You see. So, buckle down. You know, tighten the hatches and take the ride. Get it over with. And when you're riding the school of life, it is comparable to a roller coaster. You know that, and I know that. And one of the rules of riding a, a roller coaster is this. It is very dangerous to try to get off before it stops. Okay? So sit down and enjoy the ride. And when it gets scary, get scared. And when it gets laughable, laugh. That's life. That's what some people say. And I know it. So before you leave here tonight, Emyo has a sheet of paper to give you to take home so that you remember some of what we talked about tonight. And what he's going to give you is a listing of what I call the 12 keys to letting life in. So if you're a couple, take one, because I'm not sure we have enough sheets here for everybody. If you're students, don't take any, okay, because you'll get it firsthand, I'm say. You get the meat, they get the uh, leftovers. <laughs> That's the way it is. You want the meat, you got to come in. Okay? All right. Lesson number one. This should be familiar to you, especially if you've heard me talk before. Sit quietly every day for the rest of your life. A minimum of 15 minutes. If you want to begin to take care of yourself, it is not just about eating the right foods and exercising. It's about stopping, resting, and reflecting. Meditation is absolute. There is nobody who is ever going to convince me that they're on any kind of spiritual path if it does not include regular, consistent, daily meditation. You just aren't there no matter what they've told you. And I don't mean the meditation you get by listening to a CD for 10 minutes and they promise you enlightenment. Okay? Stop insulting us who worked so hard for years, if you will. Okay? So sit quietly every day for the rest of your life. 
Silence is the, the essential ingredient to get to know God. I often tell my Christian and Jewish brothers and sisters, God is not going to even start talking to you until you shut up. You see? So if you want to hear God's voice, you've got to quiet yours in order to hear it. So sit quietly every day. Number two, and the reason why it's number two is because it is so essential. Stop contriving and living your life to appease ego. Stop appeasing ego. Life is not about appeasing ego. And the way that you begin to create a life that is about not appeasing ego is to recognize that you are not your feelings, you are not your emotions, you have nothing to do with your feelings and nothing to do with your emotions, you are not your thoughts, you are not your opinions. And when we talk about ego, that is the anatomy of ego. If you and I were to meet in a bar tonight <coughs> instead of here and sit down have a couple drinks and I ask you who you were, you would begin to tell me such things as your name, which isn't your name, it's just a tag they placed on you when you were born. Uh, you would begin to tell me about what you do, what you own, where you live, and so forth. And eventually, you would start to tell me about what you think and what you feel about life. And all of that that you've just shared with me has nothing to do with who you are. So depending on how drunk we are, at the moment we get to that place, I often then say to you, okay, now who are you? You see. And you will look at me with a drunken look and say, I just told you. You see. So <clears throat> stop living your life to appease ego. And you begin by recognizing you are not your feelings and emotions. And if you haven't learned this, you certainly don't have to be spiritual to learn this part. You can appease your feelings and emotions all you want, and they're never satisfied. They're never satisfied, you see? The guy who started, who coined the phrase, thank God it's Friday, I don't know if he ever coined it and, and copyrighted it and trademarked it, but he should have because he must, he would have been a multi-billionaire today, you see? What, this whole idea that life happens on Friday, not the rest of the week, uh, has, has certainly thwarted life for so many. Number three, I already referred to, and this is essential. Stop measuring the quality of your life by the amount of pleasure in your life. Most people, when you ask them, how's life? They'll say, great. And then Zen teachers always ask, what do you mean? How do you know that? And you'll start to tell me about all the pleasurable times going on in your life and how good life feels. You're saying, stop measuring the quality of your life by the amount of pleasure in your life and you'll begin to learn how to live with equanimity in life. You'll begin to stop being afraid of the unpleasurable moments. Stop being threatened by them and so forth. The quality of one's life is not measured by the amount of pleasure. The quality of one's life is measured by whether or not 
you are free. And by free, I mean the ability to remain content, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. And the word content, as it is defined by Webster Buddha, says a kind of satisfaction with yourself and with your circumstances, no matter what, no matter what. So life is flying high in April, shot down in May. And April and May are essential. You can't get to June without both of them, you see. So stop measuring the quality of life by the amount of pleasure in your life or the amount of uh, comfort or the amount of security. People learned the hard way about that. 9-11 and the economic bust in this country. Security is an illusion. Stop striving for it. There is no such thing. Danger, danger, danger. Life is dangerous. Get over it, you see. Life is suffering. Get over it, you see. Learn how to live it fully with that fact, and you'll live fully every day of your life. Stop discriminating. Stop discriminating. Those of you who talk about unconditional love It begins by not discriminating. In order to experience unconditional love for yourself and to express it to others, you have to decide to stop discriminating. And that is going to be quite difficult because we are raised and conditioned to do just that. Stop discriminating. Number five, most important. Shakespeare Buddha wrote, To thine own self be true. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself means every time you say to yourself, well, I can do it this one time and start again tomorrow. You've lied to yourself. Every time you say to yourself, well, next time they'll be different. You've lied to yourself. Every time you say to yourself, I can get by without meditating today, you've lied to yourself. And if you lie to yourself, do you know what that causes? You don't trust anyone because you can't trust you. So if you feel like you can't trust anyone, Look at the trust you have in yourself. Are you reliable when it comes to not lying to yourself? Stop lying to yourself. I have a very dear friend who has made great strides in turning her physical and emotional and (coughs) mental health around to a level of excellence. And one of the rules she talks about when we get together has to do with you know, how she lost a tremendous amount of weight and continues to live and eat healthy, not returning ever to the old ways. And she said, Roshi, the first thing I recognized was that I was lying to myself, and I stopped. I was lying every time I said I could eat just this one. I was lying every time I said, well, I can start again tomorrow. Stop lying to yourself, to thine own self be true. Number six, whenever fearful or critical judging thoughts arise, stop, take a deep breath, and say to yourself, 
just another thought or just another lie. All critical and judgmental assessments of oneself and others have no fact base. Have no fact base. They are merely opinions that have been perpetuated over time by enough people to make it an agreement, and agreements are nothing more but that. They're not truths, they're agreements. You and I get together and I say to you, uh, so-and-so is not beautiful. And you say to me, I agree. And we operate with so-and-so as if that's true. You see? So, whenever judgmental or critical thoughts arise, even if they're your own righteous ones, especially them, you're lying to yourself, you're living a lie, just simply say, just another thought, just another lie, and move on, and move on. Get back to living life, get back to the here, get back to the now. Stop making yourself and others wrong. Stop wanting to be right. The biggest barrier between you living your life fully and living your life fully is a lesson we learned early on in life. It's not important to live life. It's important to be right and to live the right life. You see? Look, all of you that have lived the right life, stand over there. All of you who have failed to live the right life, stand over there. What do both groups have in common? You're all going to die. Okay? Death does not care whether you've lived the right life or not. Stop wanting to be right. Once again, another story in one of my earlier seminars had to do with a relationship seminar I was doing, and I was talking about uh, the different kinds of relationships, the working relationship compared to what is called a powerful relationship. And I would say to people, if you want a working relationship, this is what it looks like. But if you want a powerful relationship, you need to stop making the other person wrong. And this very elderly couple in the back who had been together for many years, traveled all over the world, partying type of couple, even though they were in their 60s and so forth, partying like they were 18 and all of that. Uh, the husband raised his hand, and I said, What is it, Frankie? And he stood up, and he said, Roshi, I hear what you're saying. But you don't understand something. I don't make her wrong. She is wrong. <laughs> make her wrong. She is wrong. <laughs> Stop wanting to be right. It's perfectly okay to be wrong, and it's a lot more fun. And it's a lot more fun. Stop wanting to be right. I learned how to stop wanting to be right when one day I said the wrong thing to someone and he beat the crap out of me. Okay? Then I learned it was fun to have the crap beaten out of you because it's just very manly. <laughs> and so forth. So stop wanting to be right. Wrong is much more fun 
and much more to learn. When you are concerned about others' opinions of you, stop, take a deep breath, and say to yourself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. One of the facts that we are unaware of often has to do with our dislike of politicians. We tend to say we don't like politicians because whatever the reason. But the truth of the matter is we don't like politicians because they remind us of ourselves. A politician is always out for the vote. A politician is always seeking nothing other than your approval, your vote. And when your life is obsessed or consumed by other people's opinions, that makes you a politician. That makes you a politician. You see? So if you were listening to Mark Nepo's story earlier, he talks about what all of us inevitably went through at some level or the other. That moment in our life when we decided that other people's approval or good opinion of us is what life was about and getting that. And from that moment on, we cut off about three quarters of life and all that was available to us. So there is a Sufi saying that goes like this, you are not a good spiritual teacher until you have at least 10,000 people who don't like you, okay? <laughs> at least that much. When I first heard that, I decided to give up the vote. Too much work. Too much work keeping other people liking you. Too much work. If you don't know that, take a moment to reflect about it. Too much work upholding other people's opinions about you. Give it up. So much of life is wasted. And you know what? And when you get down to the business of understanding how the mind is operating, you discover this. Their opinion about you doesn't come from you. It comes from their agenda. If you were listening earlier, what I bring to your and my relationship is an idea of what a good person is, what a good friend is, what a good lover is. I've already made up my mind about you before we've even met. And anything <coughs> I think about you is a function of my own agenda, my desire. The mind sees, the ego mind sees only what it's looking for. Only what it's looking for. And one of the examples I often give is if, is if did you, are you going to take pictures? Oh, you did? Okay. So the pictures that Chico took during the day, if we took a group picture of all of you, and I told you that next month we're going to have it blown up and plastered on the wall here, okay? And you came into the room, who would you be looking for? You. Okay? And you wouldn't see anybody else. You would be looking for you. You wouldn't see anybody else. And you would say to somebody possibly, where's Joe? He was there that night. And someone would say, he's right there next to you. Oh, and you couldn't even see Joe right next to you because you were looking for you. You bring an agenda to your seeing. 
and your hearing and your tasting. And that literally shapes and forms. So their opinion of you has nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with you. And unless they've done the work of liberating themselves from their conditioning, they don't even see you. They don't even see you. And one of the fact-based evidence of this has to do with therapists. Talk to a therapist who works with obesity. They will tell you that the most difficult task they have with their clients is not to get them to stay on the diet, but has to do with their body image. Has to do with their self-image. When they stand in front of the mirror, like most of us, we look for that idea of the good-looking person. And when we don't see that, we're critical. We're critical. There's been a lot of studies made into how our ideas, <coughs> driven by the media, as to the good-looking woman and the good-looking guy, has harmed life and relationships dramatically. Dramatically. So give up worrying about other people's opinions and you will find life will start pouring in. Stop rushing about. Organize your activity to always leave a few minutes early to get wherever you are going, on time or early. That's even better. Rushing about is a symptom of not taking care of yourself saying it's a symptom of having more priorities than you need in zen simplicity is the practice of slendering down the priorities in our life we need to slender our bodies down and we need to slender our minds we need to strip away all of the unnecessary activity and goals and objectives and priorities and get it down to a very slim few. And watch how much time you will have on hand that you always say you don't have enough of. <coughs> you see, you don't have enough of. Slender down your priorities. Stop rushing your life. You're going to end up at the same place at the exact time you end up there. Okay? Slow down. You're moving too fast. You got to make the morning last. <laughs> Every day, commit a random act of kindness in difficult situations or with difficult persons in your life. Every day, you know, it's easy to be a holy man on the mountain, but well, it's also easy to be kind to those who are kind to you. The practice is to learn how to unconditionally live in your life. So every day, commit at least one random act of kindness with a pain in the ass, okay? With an obnoxious person, with a righteous, judgmental, religious person. Be kind to them. Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, especially the religious ones, you say. Every day of your life, commit an act of kindness with someone, or bring kindness to some circumstance and situation where you would rather bring righteous indignation. <coughs> bring kindness. <coughs> this one I, I, I got from a book written by 
Natalie Goldberg, mm -hmm. The Long Quiet Highway. And if you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's about her life with Katagiri Roshi, who was her teacher. Take care of yourself. Take care of the ones you love. Be quiet. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Take care of the ones you love. Be quiet. Be quiet. So in the book, uh, Long Quiet Highway, she's talking about one day going to Roshi and getting his advice on how to handle his obnoxious husband, who is, you know, the relationship isn't working. She don't know what to do with him. He's always doing this. She's sitting before her teachers, complaining, 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 complaining. And finally, she waits for his response or instructions. And he says to her, Natalie, take care of yourself. Take care of your husband. Be quiet. And she thinks about it for a moment and starts to complain again. But you don't understand. And again he says, Natalie, take care of yourself. Take care of your husband. Be quiet. And she goes on again. <coughs> and finally he says to her, Natalie, I want to make sure you get this this time. Take care of yourself. Take care of your husband. Shut up! <laughs> okay? Often, if not always, the most valuable gift we bring to a relationship is our silence. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to be the one with the answer. It's often, the other day, my, my uh, three-year-old daughter was having one of those three-year-old child moments where everything was so confusing that all she could do was scream and cry, okay? And my practice is usually to just sit there and watch her do this and try to bring some insight to it, and it wasn't working. And so I decided to shut up, get up from my chair, go over to her. I wrapped my arms around her and held her while she was screaming and yelling, and she finally calmed down, and she finally stopped crying. And I said to her, now, do you know why you were crying, why you were upset? And she said to me, I don't know. <laughs> you see? So all she really needed was the assurance that it was okay. Not some kind of profound answer that daddy could have brought, the adult could have brought to the situation. And sometimes, like, again, Mark Nepo's story about when his wife says, you know what, I really missed you. All he needed to do was to put his arms around her, kiss her, and tell her, you know what, back at you. No. Ditto. <laughs> I really missed you too. But instead, as he says, his mind goes into him automatically, went into trying to figure out how to fix that so that in the future she doesn't have to deal with that, you know, that, that sense of uh, abandonment or whatever. So often... The most important thing we have to offer in life is our own presence alone. We don't need to do anything. And that is why <coughs> we go on to say, <coughs> at the bottom of the page you will see uh, one of my, uh, my, well, my own quote. There are four quotes. I added my own. Don't just sit there and worry. Just sit there. <laughs> Don't just sit there and spew out philosophy and all of these intelligent remedies to life. Just be quiet. 
and just be there for me. Just be there with life, and it will work itself out. Number 12, last but not least, and this is important. This is vital, and this is also the result of all the rest. Let your light shine. Don't withhold it. Don't place it under a basket. Life out here will not get in until life in here gets out. Express yourself. Express, you know, if only we were to take the 60s and bring them back again. All the answers we need were there. Express yourself. Let your light shine. And again, this helps you in not being concerned about other people's opinions, not being critical or judgmental. Express yourself. Become like a three-year-old child who always (laughs) expresses herself in any way she feels like at the moment. And it's always fun to be around her when she's doing that. Express yourself. Let your light shine. You are here because you are necessary. And I can prove that. In Darwin's theory of evolution, it states that the forest creates the next thing because the next thing is what's what's necessary for the process of evolution, for the forest. So if you take that and apply that to your birthday, you were born exactly the time you were needed, and what was needed was you. Express yourself. And I am absolutely convinced and have talked about this for 37 years that if we want to end suffering in the world, we need to create a conducive environment for everyone to express themselves, and suffering will end. When everybody on the planet gets to be who they are without fear of judgment and criticism or punishment, if you will, life will start to work on the planet. And that we have all the suffering on the planet because we have millions of people working at jobs they would rather not be doing, living lives they would rather not be living, pursuing goals that take too much time and too much work, and so forth. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who was one of my teachers, was being interviewed one day, and you might have caught it on television, and the interviewer finally asked the question that all monks are eventually asked, do you ever lust? Do you ever want a woman? And His Holiness, in the humorous way that he talks, says, replies back, oh, yes. Oh, often. I, my, I see a beautiful woman, and I want her. And the interviewer says, well, what do you do with that? And he says, well, he says, um, I think, first of all, uh, what it would be like to have her, and then I think, too much work. <laughs> <laughs> And then he says, but eventually, I think, I'm a monk. Uh, Not a lot of work. (laughs) I'm a monk. And that solves everything. And what the interviewer didn't know, and millions watching it, was that His Holiness was referring to what I call the principle of identity. What he was saying was that his entire life, including the most difficult times of life, such as lusting after a woman, being a celibate, and so forth, is resolved 
by living in harmony with who he is. He says, I'm a monk. And everything gets resolved. It gets resolved. So when we live in harmony with who we truly are, when we understand how the mind is operating, and we live accordingly, and the mind is always discriminating and interpreting, therefore translating to us an opinion about what we are seeing or experiencing. Aldous Huxley says, experience is never what really happened to us. It's what we did with what really happened to us. See? And spiritual practice is about stepping out of the bureaucracy of reforming the moment and believing that's the truth, believing that's what really happened. The more and more we live that way, taking responsibility for our own experiences, our own points of views, transforming, readjusting, reconditioning our conditioning, <coughs> life will start to f flow in. And that's those moments when most people say, wow, it's so beautiful today. Say, in those moments, we are not filtering any part of life. Those are the moments that start to change an individual's life, those aha moments, because the topography automatically changes when you remove the filters, when you remove the filters. The more and more <coughs> we live accordingly and live according to our purpose in life, which is to be who we truly are and to be that as a benefit for the rest of life. And that includes something that Muhammad Ali once wrote, who probably another one of the greatest spiritual teachers to ever live. Ali said, I am the greatest. I started telling myself that before I knew it. I started telling myself that before I knew it. So maybe you can start telling yourself, I am essential. I am essential. If for no other reason, Roshi said so. But I am essential. I was born with a purpose, and my job is to get about living that purpose. And the more you live on purpose, the more life feels like your life. Because you will live responsibly. And the more you live responsibly, the more life feels like you're really doing it. And when you get to the moment of death, back to Beth's question earlier, it's not going to be fearful. Most people fear death not because they're <coughs> fearful of death, but because they're fearful they never really lived. They never got to live. They never really did. And the way to really live and let life in is to stand up, be true to yourself, be true to those around you, and express yourself and watch what happens. <clears throat> Life is never the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it is. The way you deal with it is what makes the difference. <clears throat> Every now and then, bite off more than you can chew. These are some of the quotes. This is my favorite, and it's not mine. It's my favorite. What if the hokey pokey is really what it's all about? <laughs> Lighten up. I love you, and I am grateful it has been a privilege to be with you tonight.
If you want a copy of the 12 keys, see MEO on your way out. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, <coughs> what not, what's that date again? If you, I have an announcement, a couple announcements, actually, that MEO has reminded me to tell you. Well, give me a moment on... Oh, I can't get to it. I believe it's... Well, it's the second Saturday in February, and I February believe 9th. that's the 9th. February 9th. One of my favorite uh, institutions that I have committed myself to for the last 10 or 12 years is Sacred Heart Church in Camden, New Jersey. It is a world-renowned uh, parish uh, found, uh, founded and headed by Father Doyle, who is a fabulous friend of mine, a fabulous guy. And for the last 10 or 12 years, they've invited me to come and speak on their <coughs> day of peace. <coughs> and this month, the theme is, if you want peace, promote justice or support justice. And it's a day in which you get to go to the parish and, and uh, listen to numerous speakers who have devoted their lives to really making changes in the world. And I am one of those speakers that will be talking that day. It is usually a day we have an event at the monastery, but because they've asked me to come again and because I do anything they ask me when they need me, um, we're going to go there. Our community is going to go there. I want to encourage everyone strongly. Look it up on their website, Sacred Heart Church Camden. You'll find out where it is. It's a wonderful community that has done great work uh, uh, for the poor and, and, and others in life who can't do much for themselves. And uh, Father Doyle goes all the way back. He was one of the Camden, not Camden 10? Camden 30. Camden 30? 38. Was it 38? <laughs> yeah. It was, there's, yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, that was arrested during the Vietnam War as one of the protesters against war. And uh, he's, he's a fabulous Irishman with a fabulous Irish accent and a fabulous Irish sense of humor. Uh, he won, the last time I spoke there, I was leaving, and he ran into me, and we hugged and kissed each other. Hello, we hadn't seen each other for a while. And I said to him, i got to go and teach. He said, oh, no, don't go and teach. Stay here with me. Let's have some fun. I'll break open the bottle. We can chit-chat all night. He said, this is what you do. Have your students take a photograph of you and make a life-size image of yourself and a tape recorder and tell them to push the button. They won't even miss you. <laughs> so that's Father Doyle. So if you really want a day of inspiration, to experience a day of inspiration and a day of much learning, uh, Sacred Heart Church, February 9th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Anything else? Did you want me to put a picture of people who are here tonight up? Sure. We'll do that next, we'll do that next time. Okay. We're going to have your picture up next month. Okay? So you can come and look at it. Look for you and so forth. Last but not least, I have taken up the practice in, that is often practiced in Japan called tokuhatsu. And tokuhatsu is the practice in which, as I often tell people, Zen monasteries in Japan are never located near Wawa's and supermarkets. So monks every day have to go out and beg for their food, beg for the stuff that the Tenzo or monastery chef takes and makes the meals of the day. They also do this as a practice of begging for funds. Pinewind Zen Center has been there since the year 2000, 
Prior to that, Jizoan Zen Center in Cinnaminson and in Riverton, New Jersey. Since 1975, we have lived and existed as a quiet force for change in the world. As its founder and its abbot, I'm telling you I need your help. If you can find it in yourself to donate uh, to the support of keeping Pinewin open, I would be greatly appreciated. So like the monks in Japan, I stand here with my bowl in hand, ringing my bell, asking for your help. So it is fully tax deductible, as Chico would remind me to tell you. We are a 501c3 corporation. Uh, send your donations. Send your money to dear old Sujaku Roshi. <laughs> and I'll use it just to keep the center going. Every single donation since 1975 has been used to pay the bills. Neither myself or any other priest that you see here black-robed monk or teacher has ever been compensated for their services. All the money goes back into keeping those doors open for you. So help yourself by helping me, and I will love you forever, and it's good karma to help a Roshi. Okay? <laughs> good night. Thank you.